You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that entomophagists are humans who eat insects, and there are about a thousand types of insects known to be eaten in 80% of the world's cultures. From a nutritional perspective, grasshoppers and crickets have about 14 to 28 grams of protein in three and a half ounces. But if you like your insects to taste like bacon, you should try the African palm weevil, which I haven't tried yet, but I would, which are commonly eaten in their larval form. And well, they taste like bacon, which is what everything should taste like when we get bacon world domination to happen. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest needs no introduction, although I'll introduce him briefly. He is Tim Ferriss, the New York Times bestselling author of three books, including The 4-Hour Workweek, 4-Hour Body, 4-Hour Chef. He's been all over the media, more than 100 outlets. He lectures at Princeton. He's a world champion tango guy, Chinese kickboxer, an actor on a hit TV series in Hong Kong, and basically an all-around ass kicker. Tim, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. You've got a new podcast of your own. Uh, what's its name? Just so people who are listening to this who would all love your podcast can just download it right now. Yeah, for sure. It's it's the Tim Ferriss Show, which sounds 
very sort of ego maniacal. I tried, I was thinking of a lot of other things like the Tim Ferriss experience, experiment, you fill in the blank, but I didn't want it to be mistaken for say a Joe Rogan tag along or something like that. So the Tim Ferriss show it is uh, five episodes. The idea is just applying the, the 80, 20 principle to dissecting how people who are the best at what they do or world-class do what they do. So that ranges from chess prodigies. So the basis for searching for Bobby Fisher, like Josh Waitzkin to tech investors to filmmakers, screenwriters, musicians, and everything in between. So that's, that's it. It's kind of an amazing idea to just like ask the people who are good at stuff, how they do it instead of just having to slog through it yourself. It, it, that's kind of cheating Tim Ferriss style in, in a way that I respect greatly. Uh, are you a cheater? Uh, you know, I wouldn't say a cheater. I think that the content that I've lost by not recording the audio and video for, say, the research for The 4-Hour Body is one example, uh, makes me sad and it makes me irritated <laughs> with myself sometimes because the process of unearthing these hidden gems is really just a, a, a process of asking better questions or asking yeah. uncommon questions. And uh, the interviews that I do on The Tim Ferriss Show are exactly that. It's showing how I ask just a series of questions of these people who are top performers, in many cases, very unorthodox top performers, yeah. so that I can find things that can be replicated. So, I mean, it's, it's very much along the lines of, of a lot of the stuff that you do as well. And to show people that it's not a superhuman gift to figure these things out, it's, it's a better toolkit. That's all it is. <laughs> Tools make yeah. us more human than not. Uh, all right. I didn't think we were going to jump into this right away, but you just, you said something that triggered it. I, I have this theory that, that like, I don't know, a gazillion years ago, we won't go into exactly how many years ago, there were like these two cavemen and one of them came back with fire from a lightning strike. And he said, I, I will keep cave warm, Og, and, or Grok actually, and it's been a shout out to Mark Sisson there. Um, so, and then the other guy was like, that, that might not be safe. Let's not use it. And like one of those two cavemen is our ancestor, right? <laughs> the other right. One was yeah, like, it's cold, I died. So are smart drugs like fire? I think they actually are. That's a great analogy. I think they're like fire or they're like a really sharp chef's knife. I think that they can be used for benefit and they can certainly be used to uh, severely damage yourself and other people. I think that the, the dose makes the poison, right? So a controlled fire is one thing versus a fire that consumes your house and everyone in it. Uh, the, judicious and intelligent use of, say, a scalpel or a kitchen knife is one thing, as opposed to running with a pair of scissors and landing and having it go through your head. Yeah. And uh, you, can, you can look at use of smart drugs and find both good examples, informed uh, examples of use, and very haphazard examples of use. And a lot of it comes down to, number one, doing your homework, and number two, uh, experimenting and having some ability to track uh, and in my case, I do very extensive blood testing, among other things, and tend not to go more than four to eight weeks without blood testing. Wow. Uh, you're, you're that often, huh? Yeah. Weeks? Yeah. Yeah. I do it really, really frequently. Is that so the, full, the full wellness effects panel? I know we're both advisors yeah. of wellness effects. You yeah. do the full one? I, yeah. Really I, do, like, I, I, I do the full Cadillac, everything. And I'm, I'm doing another draw this Friday, for instance, because nice. I did uh, all of last month without alcohol. And have Whoa. made a couple of changes. Yeah, made a couple of changes to my diet, and I want to see what the effects are uh, before I get fully back into the swing of you know bourbon and and wine and all that stuff. I, I am so intrigued about those results. You're going to blog about that, obviously, right? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll probably write yeah, it let, before and after. When you do, um, as soon as I, I see it, I'll retweet that because 
I've been writing a lot about like what aldehyde spikes in the liver do and what you can do to, yeah. to, to work on that. And a lot of people are using uh, the glutathione that I make to reduce that spike or that they're taking yeah. masses of vitamin C and all that just to have less of a hangover. But uh, I've found from my own, just my own, more from like cognitive abilities and really from like the visual labs, I eat, I grow a muffin top. Uh, when I, when I drink, I, I just don't perform as well for about four days. Like my brain just isn't yeah. quite perfect. I don't remember every word that should just flow like they stick yeah. and it drives me nuts. So I just decided like it's not really going to work and I can't biologically justify it in a way that makes sense as as a positive. So I got I'm so intrigued at your results. That's going to be just an epic post. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And to, to come back to something else that you mentioned also, I think that the way we're talking about smart drugs and as you know, I mean, I've tried a million different things as of you. So ranging, I mean, we can get into it, but I mean, yeah. basopressin, hydrogene, you, you name it, uh, modafinil, I, I've, I've tried a lot of these. I, I generally have two assumptions when I'm, I'm doing experiments. The first is what I mentioned, which is the dose makes the poison. So oh, yeah. it tends to be a, a let's just say, a, an inverted, or no, it's, it's more of a bell-shaped curve of effect and side effect. And, and in my mind, they're typically rather correlated where at some point the dose to benefit ratio is off and you could take something that's thought of as very innocuous like water and you can kill someone <laughs> through overconsumption of water uh, it's actually very common in marathons uh, mm -hmm. because people view dehydration as this demon which has been of course propagandized by a lot of companies like Gatorade so they <laughs> overconsume uh, and then dilute their electrolyte balance to the point where their heart can no longer function. Uh, vitamin C, another example. So I'm a huge proponent and consumer of vitamin C, but the fact of the matter is if you do an IV drip of vitamin C and you put 100 grams into someone uh, over a short enough period of time, a lot of people will go into a diabetic coma and, uh, and potentially uh, die from the experience. So the dose makes the poison is kind of number one. And then number two is I just assume, and this may be accurate, it may not be, that there's typically no biological free lunch. So if there's a strong effect, there's typically a side effect or side effects or unknown effects, you might want to say, which can be beneficial or be very deleterious. And uh, if you don't know what they are, it's your job to figure out what they are. Uh, yes. So that's, that's, that's typically how I think about these things. It sounds like you come from a world of lots of experience experimenting with smart drugs. The one I was most concerned about was modafinil because I took it pretty much daily at varying doses for eight years. Yeah. And it really, I mean, it changed my world because I did not understand the core biology about why I wasn't performing the way I wanted to. I was going to Wharton. I was working full time at a startup that we sold for $600 million. And I was, you know, burning the candle at both ends and two places in the middle, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I felt like maybe I am cheating. So before like a test, I would put like the vasopressin <laughs> and the hydrogen and the modafinil like, on the desk in front of me. I'm like, it's only doping if you don't tell everyone so they have a fair right. advantage. And whether some of my colleagues <laughs> in school might have occasionally taken some non-prescription smart drugs from me is up to them to talk about. But I didn't want to be that guy who was like, you know, cheating. So I decided to be public. Like modafinil was my LinkedIn profile 10 years ago. I'm like, I'm just going to put it in here, like like all things disclosed, right? Right. Um, what do you think the downsides of modafinil are? Um, if you're familiar enough with the pharmacology, but I don't, I don't know. 
Yeah, you know, I've looked at uh, you know, I've looked at Pro Vigil, some Adafinil. I've looked at New Vigil. Yeah, uh, I'm honestly not familiar enough with the pharmacokinetics and the actual biochemistry of Modafinil to have a, a, a fantastically informed conversation about it. Okay, I do recall at one point, and I'd love for you to correct me if I'm wrong, that this is the case oftentimes with uh, even prescription medications. Sometimes the mechanisms are not entirely understood. I mean, they're hypothesized to work in a certain way, but not exactly understood. And that, that can often relate to, say, a new target of some type, right? So they act as an agonist or an antagonist for a receptor that may be poorly uh, understood or partially understood. Modafinil, I've used before, and it has spectacular results. I mean, it really does. It, it, it performs as advertised. And I actually... <laughs> became familiar with it a long time ago when it was being used by uh, sprinters with narcolepsy. <laughs> and and uh, also, uh, you know, the, since that run, those two correlate so highly. Yeah. And uh, military, who, of course, are very well known for using uppers and downers. I mean, they mm -hmm. use like greenies, so, you know, methamphetamine plus <laughs> any number <laughs> of different sleeping medications to turn them off. But modafinil is one of those drugs that uh, I seem to have a certain sensitivity to, uh, much like, and this is very common, uh, Biagra. You have to be very careful with, let's say, vasodilators mm -hmm. or constrictors. Uh, I, I get a very sharp pain, like a very acute migraine-like pain from using uh, modafinil for more than one day. And uh, that to me is a cue just to be very, very careful. And uh, particularly when it relates to any type of cerebral sensitivity. Um, and of course, you know this, but that's, that's been really brought into uh, sort of high def for me with the unfortunate passing of Seth Roberts recently. I, I, um, was, I was shocked to hear that. Yeah. 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 I mean, very otherwise healthy guy from all outward indications like drops dead on a, on a hiking trail in Berkeley from what appeared to be, and there may be more information that's brought this to light, but I think it was a cerebral hemorrhage or uh, some type of aneurysm. Um, and there are, there are a lot of theories as to why this may have happened. Uh, one of which is that it appears he was consuming 10 times the, the sort of suggested higher tolerance dose for flaxseed oil and other types uh, of, of oils. Yeah. Um, and uh, which can be dangerous. I mean, it's uh, there. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence to support increased frequency of, say, intestinal bleeding or stomach bleeding if you consume massive, massive quantities of fish oil, for instance. So I'm I'm particularly sensitive to modafinil, so it's not something I use on on a very highly frequent basis. Oddly enough, you know, I get the question, "What's your favorite smart drug?" A lot, mm -hmm. and I've tried. You know, you look yeah, at my, <laughs> yeah, you look at my my pharmacy I have in my house, and it's like, well, what are you feeling like today? Would yeah, you like, yeah. like you know, phenylparacetam or aniracetam, or maybe you don't want the racetams. How about you know, whatever? Like I yeah. have all of them, but for creative work, for synthesis and connecting dots, I might not otherwise connect. Yerba mate is still my favorite. I mean, yerba mate wow. tea, and consumed over a long period of time. And this is this is another point I'd encourage people. Yeah, this is another point I'd encourage people to think about is a substance or a chemical is highly – the effect of a chemical is highly dependent on its means of administration, right? So you take, for instance, testosterone. You could have a gel, an injectable, an oral. The way that that affects your body, the way that affects your liver, the way that uh, determines dosing, side effects – very, very different. And similarly with yerba mate, you have, let's say, bagged yerba mate for tea bags. 
You have iced yerba mate that you can get in ready-to-drink packages, uh, neither of which give me the effect of filling a gourd. In this case, I actually have a metal container, a small metal mm-hmm. container, with the yerba mate leaves and then sort of sipping it over the span of, say, an hour or two, which is how they traditionally consume it in Argentina or Uruguay or any of these places. And it has, at least based on my understanding, it has the stimulants you would find in coffee, uh, coffee right? So methylxanthine, right. green tea, theophylline, and then dark chocolate like theobromine. Right. Uh, and you get, therefore, three very different uh, pharmacokinetic profiles, meaning for those people who don't know the term, the rate at which those peak in your blood plasma. Uh, and so for me, I get a two to three hour steady, even keeled, moderate high uh, cognitively from mm-hmm. sipping yerba mate that is just, it's the perfect storm for me for writing. You've inspired something. I, I've enjoyed the taste of yerba mate, but never gone after the high from it. So one of the reasons Bulletproof Coffee works is when you're blending the butter and specifically the brain octane, you get small micelles that cross the gut barrier more easily that carry yep. in the basically the pharmacoactive things in the coffee, you know, the coffee yep. oils and the other chemicals. Yep. I'm going to try it with yerba mate and yep. blend it up that way to see if basically I can boost the levels of those things that get past yep. the gut, which yep. is intriguing and exciting. Yeah, so so I'll tell you actually I've done some I've done some experiments. Okay. Yeah, surprise surprise. Uh, not with uh, not with yerba mate, but there was a period of time uh, where I was traveling quite heavily, and I love I love puer tea, and right, I also right. love green tea. Uh, puer, despite the fact that it's dark, tends to be lower in caffeine uh, or st- stimulant properties. So I would combine the puer with the green tea, and then I would blend it with Kerrygold and a small amount of MCTs. Uh, I mean, in this case, coconut oil. I ended up later experimenting with caprylic acid. I'm not sure how much you've played around with caprylic acid. That is my, brain octane is made out of, it's actually tricaprylate. Like you need to have all three molecules in the right place, but yeah. yeah. (laughs) So that, yeah, it's, uh, so adjusting for gut tolerance, um, (laughs) which is is to say, you know, adjusting Mm -hmm. to avoid disaster pads. I sort of ended up with this, this, fat tea concoction that really seemed to magnify the effects of the tea. So I could get by, I had my stash of tea and it was going to last a very limited period of time. So I was sort of extending right. my stash by combining them. So it should work. Uh, the The challenge I'd be curious to see with Yerba Mate is how good it is for creativity simply because to get enough volume of Yerba Mate tea to blend it with the butter or the MCTs would sort of necessitate a higher dose at once, if that makes sense. Right. So, you, so you'd have to steep it for a, a potentially longer period of time. Anyway, yeah, I'll read about it. So definitely. Uh, All right, I'm, I'm going to give it a try because I never thought of that until you yeah. just mentioned this. So thank yeah. you, Tim. That, that's, yeah, of course. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I when I'm doing writing, probably well, bulletproof coffee. Um, for some reason, I get most creativity at night. So this is biologically destructive. But if I just really want to just like do 10,000 words, it's like 11pm, bulletproof coffee and aracetam stacked with phenyl paracetam, uh, and some Siltap. And like, I, I've been helping Avalar then Z out on, you know, promoting Siltap and that whole combination. I'm like, I'm good to go. And, and it's like, I just disappear. And then like eight or nine hours later, there's all these words and they're good, right? Yeah, that, that kind of flow state. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Siltap is great stuff. I, uh, I originally connected with Abelard. I, I 
ended up mentioning the the Siltep stack in Wired magazine. This was well before that, well before he was producing it with, I guess, Natural Stacks as the brand. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's close by. Obviously, he's kind of in the backyard up in NorCal. And uh, I am a I'm a huge fan of the stack. What I find personally, and again, so much of this is dependent on your individual biochemical yeah. signature. Uh, I love Siltep. If I use it, I just need to ensure that I can budget for like 10 to 12 hours of sleep <laughs> that night because I need to replenish whatever yeah. is being put into hyperdrive. Uh, but for writing, it's fantastic. And uh, I found also in terms of peak creative states, and uh, I tend to use the word synthesis just because I realized for, for book writing myself, I could do the interviews, I could do the research, I could do the gathering mm-hmm. throughout the day. But the only time I actually put out good drafts of finished content, the synthesis was between, say, 10 p.m. and like 5 a.m. Oh, so which you is, have like that you same said, window. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's horrible for your social life uh, or any of your relationships. But uh, what I noticed is that uh, even people who write, write early tend to do it before the rest of the world wakes up. So it's this kind of 10 p.m. to like 7.30, a.m. range that seems to be very consistent across all of these top writers, musicians, uh, artists. Uh, and actually, you know, one of the books in my, uh, I have a book club and one of the books that, that struck me was daily rituals, which is about, you know, about 200 of these people. And it's, it's extremely consistent. Like you, you almost never find someone who's like, yeah, I do my best work after lunch. Almost never happens. Wow. Uh, so by the way, um, how can people find out more about your book club? Cause I, I just got your quarterly.co uh, package that you just sent kind of unexpectedly. And it was, it was an awesome selection and like you're curating amazing stuff there. And I'm, I'm walking around all day long, like learning about grip strength, you know, look, there oh, we go yeah. on the, the beginner one. I could do it anyway. So like, like you pick out good stuff. Where can people learn about the books you're recommending? Cause I'm totally going to read those. I'm, I'm joining your book club. Yeah. The book club is, uh, the book club has been really fun. I've been basically acquiring rights to books that I think are underappreciated. And then promoting the living hell out of them. And in some cases, producing audiobooks and things like that. So if you just go to uh, – the blog is fourhourblog.com, F-O-U-R-H-O-U-R-B-L-O-G.com. And then just either search Tim Ferriss Book Club and there will be a dedicated page shortly. Or look under topics and click on, on Book Club and there are four or five books thus far. Uh, the quarterly stuff is really fun. Those are just objects or books or anything that I get obsessed with. And can't get out of my head. I put in these boxes for people once every three months. So they can check that out just at quarterly.co forward slash Tim. And you know, you mentioned something. I was I was worried about maybe getting hungry while we were doing this. And uh, you, you, it's so crazy that this ties into your your uh, cool fact of the day. But so I have I have these things. Nice. I've, been, I've been experimenting. I'm not sure if you've seen these. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the EXO cricket flower bars. So I'm meeting with I've, those guys, I think, in New York or somewhere oh, in the next awesome. couple of weeks. Yeah. 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 So Gabby and Greg are great. And um, they're working with a, you know, the former head of R&D at the Fat Duck, which is the number one ranked restaurant in the world, to develop insect protein into an American sort of mainstream food product, which is a huge challenge. I'll be helping them. But these may these may or may not pop up in your next in your next quarterly box. There's going to be a lot of fun stuff coming. I, I just gave my kids uh, cricket bars for the first time. Uh, I, I found some up here in Canada. It's not the EXO brand, um, but the next time I'm in the states, I'm definitely uh, going to be getting some of those because um, yeah. it's it's a good idea. And I'll tell you, compared to like soy or tofu, I'll be eating crickets all day long. Like oh yeah. <laughs> well, what's what's so cool about 
cricket or insect protein in general. And I think the uh, whatever they were, not the witchetty grubs, but like the weevil worms or whatever right. you, they were that you mentioned, they're actually nicknamed jungle bacon, which is like, <laughs> I could see a brand. But the uh, <laughs> but the you could sell it to paleo people across the country. What's so cool about insects, and I and I did a lot of research with insects during the Four Hour Chef. I mean, I I bought live insects of all different types and made food from them. Is that uh, unlike a lot of say uh, isolate products, there's there which I also consume, but crickets are very minimally processed. So you basically just take live animals. This is very hard to do with cows, for instance, and you just grind them up, <laughs> and then you and then you have this end product that has a complete amino acid profile. Uh, that lacks the you know phytoestrogens and other things that might be of concern with with a lot of common sources otherwise. So it's it's and it also straddles this this really interesting world where you know paleo people and vegan people generally do not get along. And this is this is one of those rare you know food sources that might actually straddle yeah. both of them. Uh, so I'm curious to see how people respond to it. I gave a talk at a David Wolf's conference recently. Yeah. Who's you know a raw vegan kind of guy, and I've got a lot of respect for him. Uh, I used to be a raw vegan, and raw vegans care as much about food quality as, as you or I do. Like it yeah. really matters what you put in your body. Um, they might just like their vegetables not compressed as meat. But I, I stood up and I said, guys, just a confession. Uh, this is my opener. I'm a lacto ovo beefo porco vegetarian. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm either going down in flames for this like 90 minute talk or they're going to love me. And they were like the audience was really cool. Uh, and I talked about like butter and salt and why they have a place in the human diet. And end of the day, I think there's more commonality between vegans and paleos than either side wants to think about. And I mean, I've oh, made yeah. fun of vegans every now and then because they're so fun. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, I've been one. So like it's a little bit of self-referential. So, yeah, no, agreed. Agreed. I mean, I think the sort of the polar extremes have more in common in almost any place. Yeah. Uh, than they have in common with the moderates in between. And that's true for fans and critics as well. I mean, I find, for instance, the if you look at your fan base or my fan base, you you find these polar extremes of people who love everything you put out, yeah, regardless of what it is, and people who hate everything you put out, regardless of what it is. And what I've noticed is that that, and this is not always the case. This isn't necessarily true in veganism and paleo, but they're they're the they're the fastest to switch. <laughs> so, so if you slight or if one of your diehard fans has the perception of you having slighted them or mistreated them in some way, yeah. they can become your absolute worst nightmare. Uh, conversely, one of your diehard haters, if you manage to convert them, can become your biggest supporter and more, most, most vo vocal supporter. Um, so it's been very fascinating to watch that kind of stuff. And people, you know, I get a lot of weird stuff in terms of uh, – yeah, I've had death threats and all sorts of craziness. And wow. people ask me like, oh my God, like, are you worried about your haters? And I'm like, well, I am. But, you know, on the other hand, I'm actually equally concerned for the fans who, who try to follow advice without doing their own homework and due it, diligence. Oh um, yeah, Tim. It, it, it's so. worrisome, right? Like I, I had one, one guy who's consuming 22 tablespoons of brain octane a day. And oh I'm like, God. he's asking me for advice. I'm like, dude, I have no idea. Like, like you could, you could yeah. melt into like a jellyfish substance tomorrow. Like, like no one's ever done this in history. And I don't think you want to do that with your body, but yeah. I can't stop you. Right. right. Um, so you, you kind of, you're holding a mantle where, you know, if you recommend something and then it doesn't work or it harms people, do you feel personally responsible for that? Like at some uh, level? 
Well, you know, I, I try to, my general process for testing this stuff is number one, t I test everything myself. Yeah. And then once I've tested it on myself, for safety first, efficacy second, then I will test it uh, with other people who are sort of my, my core <laughs> group of, of testers, which yeah. is a small group of people, <clears throat> men and women of different ages and ethnicities. Uh, and typically the tests themselves come from my hypothesis that is formed after reviewing studies on, say, PubMed or something like that. So there's some kernel of research or data in the beginning. And then only after that will I make recommendations. Uh, what I've realized, though, is that um, if you provide anything that can be remotely hazardous and you include instructions and warnings for how to avoid it being dangerous, you should assume that 10% of the people who read it are never going to pay any attention or any heed to the warnings. And that's why, for instance, I had a chapter on breath holding. Yeah. Uh, David Blaine taught me how to hold my breath in the four-hour body. And, it was, and I, I, I personally, it was not anyone else asking to have it removed. I asked to have it removed because uh, a number of people, not, nothing catastrophic happened, but uh, people were not paying attention to the warnings. And I said, look, do not practice this in water. Like if you're ever going to try it, you sit in a chair and here's mm -hmm. how you practice. But uh, needless to say, there were people who were like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go out to the public pool and try this tomorrow. And I'm like, no, because if it's six inches of water, six feet or 60 feet, if your face is immersed, it doesn't matter. It can, they can all kill you equally. So, mm -hmm. so I had it removed. Uh, I feel a responsibility to teach people how to be good citizen scientists and how to judge and separate good science from bad science. Once I provide that toolkit, I hold them responsible for what they do. And I can point the direction and say, I find this interesting. I have tried this. Uh, but I do take the responsibility very seriously. So I, I do believe that you know, with great audience comes great responsibility. And you have to assume that you know one out of every thousand fans or readers or, or customers you have is completely batshit crazy. <laughs> so, you ha so you have to account for that, right? And if you have a million of million people, right. that's, a, that's, that's a small army of crazy people. And then you have to assume that at least 10% are not going to read the directions. Right. So I keep both of those things in mind when I'm trying to design protocols that I might explain to people. Uh, because it is scary. It can, be, it can be scary unleashing these things into the world that you hope will be sort of consumed, uh, you know, literally or metaphorically, right. the way you intend them to be consumed. I've found people still, I, I've made videos and, and all this, like to me, making bulletproof coffee is pretty simple, <clears throat> but they put the butter in with the ground coffee inside the coffee maker and wonder <laughs> why crap comes out. And it's like, guys, like, I don't know how to make it any clearer, but that's, I think to your point, right? That you don't, yeah. you don't know what they're going to do. Well, okay. <laughs> so, so then you have these people who are Uber fans and you have these like haters. Do you take the hater stuff personally? Or like, what's your... What's your strategy for not like absorbing all that negative, you know, like this, I know I, I receive similar stuff, probably not at the level you do because I'm nowhere near as, as well known as you are. But I mean, like, like all celebrities deal with this at some level or another. Yeah. Uh, I think that the, there, there are a couple of things worth uh, remembering. And uh, the, the most important is you don't want to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. So I do pay attention to intelligent criticism. Yeah. Uh, even if occasionally it is, uh, how should I put this, less than diplomatic. Um, <laughs> so it's it's important not to assume that all 
critics, especially constructive criticism, uh, is coming from haters and use that label to disregard yeah. it. Uh, but there are a couple of other things that I think are equally important to keep in mind, especially when sort of every genius and every idiot has a voice on the internet, particularly with anonymity. And that is number one, you know, it's, it's not about how many people don't get it. It's about how many people get it. Right. So what is the critical mass of people mm -hmm. you want to influence and affect? And how are you tracking that? What are your key performance indicators? What are the, what are the metrics you're using to determine whether or not you are sort of achieving your goal, assuming that is trying to impact a certain number of people and at a certain magnitude, right? It's about the number of people who get it, not the number of people who don't. Number two is, uh, you know, trying to appeal to all people is a sign of mediocrity. That's actually paraphrasing a quote from Colin Powell. And it's very hard to do any job well yeah. uh, if you are fragile in that way. And there's actually uh, a quote that, uh, that I like, which is from Nassim Taleb. And I believe he originally... Stuff. Exactly. And he actually emailed this to me before Anti-Fragile came out. And it was, robustness is when you care more about the few who like your work than the multitude who hate it or hates it. You know, in parentheses, artists. Wow. Fragility. Yeah. Fragility is when you care more about the few who hate your work than the multitude who loves it. And then in parentheses, politicians. And <laughs> uh, I, I think that's very critical to keep in mind uh, as you interact with the world. And in addition to that, I should say, just as a general rule, I don't go out of my way to search for negativity. So on YouTube, for instance, it's fine to enable comments. I'll pay attention to a handful of things once and again. But if you look at any video and you scroll down, <laughs> within the first 200 comments, Hitler's going to come up. Right. <laughs> uh, like Hitler or like racist epithets will get thrown around yeah. within the first 200 comments does not matter what the video is. It could be a kitten video. It could be a nonprofit video. Uh, it makes no difference. So uh, I, I go out of my way to filter that kind of stuff out. Uh, and the rule is, for instance, on my blog, and the blog comments make this very clear, and I think this is part of the reason that my community is very well known for being extremely positive and constructive, uh, not always agreeing. Mm -hmm. is the, the rule on my blog is you can disagree uh, and you can even attack me, but you can't attack each other. If you attack one another, you're going to get banned. I will blacklist you. I have no problem with it. Uh, and I treat it as my living room. It's like if I invite 10 dinner guests over, there can be a spirited debate. Uh, there can be a spirited debate, but you can't call someone a fucking idiot. If you call someone yeah. a fucking idiot, you're not going to get invited again. And on the Internet, that equals getting blacklisted. Uh, and I enforce that very, very seriously. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean there are no critics. There are plenty, uh, there are plenty yeah. of critics on my site who will provide me with very valuable feedback, but they do it in a way that is is not uh, insultingly confrontational. The, the difference between the facts are wrong or I have doubts about what you said versus I have doubts about what you said, you you scam artist truant or whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever they right. make up, right? Yeah, I, I, I try to do the same thing. I, I'm yeah. not probably as, as gifted as you are at that. But if there's personal attacks towards yeah. others or honestly, if you want to say the same really negative stuff in, about me, I will delete the comment because it just it brings negativity to everyone. And if you want to say I'm wrong for a good reason, maybe I am wrong and then I damn well want to know it, right? Yeah, there, there are uh, – uh, the, the number one rule for me is you're not allowed to attack anyone else. If you want to attack me, that's fine. You attack that's another cool. commenter and you make it an ad hominem attack, you're gone. You're booted. Yep. This, is a, this is a neighborhood. This is a tribe. And like you know, whether you like it or not, you're on my blog. That makes me the village elder. So like, <laughs> you know, 
you play by the rules or you're gone, like any society, like any culture. Like you yeah. play by the rules or you get exiled. That's it. Cool. You know? All right. I got another question for you. This has to do with creativity and performance and, well, and sex. So you wrote about sex and four-hour yeah. body, uh, which right. was which was brilliant, by the way. And uh, I've met lots of the characters that you, uh, you mentioned there. <laughs> and what's your experience uh, on the flip side as a male in terms of energy, creative force, and, and all of that when it comes down to sex? Uh, do you mean uh, sort of biochemically speaking? Like, is it related just, to testosterone or just? Well, we talk about like getting in the zone for writing. So not not just testosterone levels, but um, the guy who did. Uh, wow, this doesn't happen to me very often. Um, something wrong with my sleep, apparently. Um, the guy who wrote uh, the first self help book ever, Think and Grow Rich. Napoleon Hill is the guy I'm thinking of. Napoleon Hill shouldn't have taken that long to come up. My recall time's yeah. off. More anorexitam. <laughs> so. Napoleon Hill has a whole chapter on, you know, like basically for guys, don't don't orgasm too much. So I, I did a quantified right. self-talk a couple of years ago where I measured like uh, Taoist frequencies of male orgasm and how they affected overall happiness and mm-hmm. thus performance. Uh, and so I knew I, you wrote so much about the woman side of sex in your book. But I was wondering if in the context of all the experiments, like have you ever noticed or quantified or seen a difference in your own mental focus and energy with regards to sex? Okay, so related to sex and male orgasm, uh, so a couple of, this is a good news, bad news situation. So the, the, the bad news is if you look at studies of other species, uh, the, the number of times, uh, kind of the mileage, so to speak, the number of times that the male ejaculates seems to be inversely correlated with lifespan. Yes. So <laughs> that's the bad news. Uh, the, the good news is, at least in my experience, uh, you know, sacrificing myself for science, um, <laughs> and and I'm looking, I'm looking at, uh, I want to look at the actual sort of uh, physical determinants of this, and I haven't quite pinpointed it, but I think that if you are ejaculating from sex, uh, that you can do it fairly frequently and still maintain the type of alertness and drive and sort of practical aggression that comes from very healthy, uh, if not optimal sex hormone levels and so on. It would appear that if you're going through the same physical act, but using porn as the stimulus, that at least in my experience, very different outcome. And actually, I think biochemically very different, uh, which which would make sense on on some level. But I haven't pinpointed all of the the realities of that. But I, I don't think that I don't think that to say uh, aim for optimal cognitive performance, you have to abstain from sex yeah. for extended periods of time. It doesn't it's, seem to be the case. If you want, yeah. yeah. If you want to optimize for sperm count and sperm morphology and so on. It appears that uh, around 72 hours is where you get the highest quality of yep. sperm, uh, and uh, you know, sort of stopping yourself up for two weeks does not improve the outcome. If you're do- looking to say bank sperm, yeah. for instance, um, it probably lowers the outcome from my, it, my it does. fertility. Yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't a good idea. I, yeah, I think if you get into that. Um, Google dopamine sensitivity and porn. I, I think what's going on there is just higher spikes of dopamine in shorter periods of time, so you get dopamine resistance. Yeah, uh, that's a sure. theory, but I don't know if it's the right theory. But Interesting. I don't know how to test it either. Yeah, you know, like that could be it, right? It's like insulin resistance. You yeah. just it's porn induced dopamine resistance. <laughs> There's probably some great acronym for that, like <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, we're coming up on the end of the show, Tim. 
there's a question that I've asked every guest except that one time when I forgot. And <laughs> the question is, if you had three pieces of advice for people, uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be from any of your books or anything like that, but just your entire life experience, the three most important things to tell people who want to perform better, who want to kick more ass. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Let's see. Um, the first would be you're the average of the five people you associate with most. So pick your peer group. I mean, that's physically, financially, emotionally, all of the above. You're the average of the five people you associate with most. So pick those people very, very carefully. Second would be it's about the people who get it, not the people who don't get it. So related to our conversation about haters, like focus on the impact you're making, not the people who are nipping at your heels who are the detractors. And it's worth watching the movie Ratatouille to listen to Anton Ego's <laughs> concluding speech uh, for this. Uh, and then point number three would be have, have big goals. Read the book, The Magic of Thinking Big. Have big goals that get you fucking excited. Uh, I think the... Uh, I think the main reason that people don't do amazing things is they aim for what they perceive as realistic in quotation mark uh, in quotation marks goals. So have have some like big crazy goals. Do some obviously with sort of uh, self preservation in mind. I mean, uh, really really aim for the yeah. aim for the stars, which sounds cliched, but if it, it was either Larry Page or Sergey Brin, so one of the wonder twins behind uh, Google, who said, you know, something that a lot of people miss is that. It's when you aim really, really big, and I'm paraphrasing here, you can look it up. When you aim at something really huge, it's hard to fail completely. He's like, the, the part that people miss is they don't realize it's hard to fail completely. You usually get some tremendously amazing outcome. If you, if you shoot at something big enough, kind of Elon Musk style, right. uh, it's hard to fail completely. So think big. Those would be my, those would be my three pieces of advice. Well, you're one of the, the probably top two people I ever wanted to get that piece of advice from. So thanks, Tim. Badass advice, as I'd expect. By the way, the other guy is Robert Green, who's agreed to be on the podcast as soon as we get our calendars lined up. The awesome. guy who wrote Mastery. So like, like the two of you, I'm like, I really want to know what's in there. What a, what a fantastic list. All right, Tim, you have more projects than I can keep straight in my brain without more smart drugs than I took this morning. <laughs> Give me a rundown of the URLs where people can find out about the cool stuff you're doing, including your angel investing, which I'm intrigued by. Yeah, definitely. So I, uh, there are a couple of places where people can, can see what I'm up to, the latest crazy experiments that I'm doing. The, the heartbeat of it all is the blog. So fourhourblog.com, uh, F-O-U-R-H-O-U-R-B-L-O-G.com. You can also just Google Tim Ferriss blog and it'll pop up. Uh, Twitter, I do a lot of my shorter form uh, links to studies. Uh, I pull my audience quite a bit. Uh, do do some really fun stuff on Twitter. I have about five hundred thousand or so followers there. That's just uh, T Ferris, so T F E R R I S S. Facebook is just Tim Ferris, uh, two R's, two S's. And uh, if you're interested in tech and angel investing, uh, I have one of the largest syndicates on AngelList, which is a very very fascinating site. I'm an advisor to the company. You can check it out. But I have about you know, three or between three and four million dollars in committed capital for these startup deals that I do, and people who are outside of Silicon Valley can participate in these deals by backing my syndicate, which is a very, very new possibility. So that's just angel.co. That is AngelList. If you go to angel.co forward slash Tim, you can see pretty much all the deals I've ever invested in that I advise. 
deals that I'm going to be syndicating soon. I have a couple of really interesting ones coming up. So if you're interested in tech, uh, angel.co is a great place to just learn about the players involved and also to back the people that you would like to back. Awesome. And your iTunes address, where do people find uh, your podcast, which yeah, is awesome. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah. yeah, the Tim Ferriss Show uh, has some really incredible top performers on it, and uh, it's fun, too. I mean, I do get drunk on a few of them, which I don't recommend. <laughs> uh, it's hard to uh, sort of write, uh, what is it, write drunk and edit sober, as Hemingway said, in audio, but the Tim Ferriss Show has, uh, has a lot of interesting folks on it. So just, just search uh, Tim Ferriss with two R's and two S's on iTunes, and the Tim Ferriss Show will pop right up. I think it's in the top 10 on iTunes uh, or top 15 at the moment uh, across all the podcasts. That's an accomplishment that is worthy of Tim Ferriss. Tim, thank you for being on the show. It's uh, an amazing honor to get to talk with you face-to-face, at least over Skype. And uh, I hope we get a chance to meet in person sometime soon. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Until next time. Check out the new Siltep smart drug. This is an herbal preparation that was recently discovered where a synergistic combination of natural ingredients helps long-term potentiation in the brain. It's a totally different effect than you get from my other favorite mental stimulants, including things like alpha brain, which we carry on upgraded self, which can help to stimulate your acetylcholine levels, which can give you more focus and more energy. Or things like even aniracetam, my favorite actual smart drug that comes from the pharmaceutical side of things. You can buy Siltep now on UpgradedSelf.com. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.